Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's Meet the Artist interview. My name is Jennifer Kavakovich. I'm the Board Relations Manager for San Francisco Ballet, and I'm pleased to present this program on behalf of the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'd also like to welcome our online listeners, as this interview will be podcast on our website, sfballet.org. Today is Sunday, April 10th, and we are in the War Memorial Opera House before a matinee performance of Program 7 of San Francisco Ballet's 2011 repertory season. The program includes Michelle Fokin's Petrushka, Renato Zanella's Underskin, and Christopher Wilden's Number 9, which had its world premiere on Friday. Now, traditionally, these Meet the Artist interviews are about the program that we're going to see uh, following, but I think that you will forgive us the transgression when I introduce our guest today, who is a legend in the dance world, without exaggeration, Mr. Jacques D'Amboise. Jacques was a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet, where he had more works choreographed for him by George Balanchine than any other dancer. He appeared in such films as Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Carousel. In 1976, he founded the National Dance Institute to provide arts education to students. He is also a choreographer, a writer and director for theater, film, and television, recipient of numerous awards, including the National Medal for the Arts and a Kennedy Center honor, and he's an author. His memoir, I Was a Dancer, was recently published, and we are very honored to have him as our guest today. Thank you, Jacques. Jennifer, thank you. I have to tell you a secret. My hair is really black, but I dyed it white because they said, oh, you're a legend. (laughs) 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 By the way, this theater, uh, well, first of all, hello, 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 and good, good, good. Triple good is the way I feel, because this theater and this company, and if you read the book, you'll find out why, uh, right in that corner, in a ballet choreographed by Lou Christensen, I did the first time 13 pirouettes on stage. I'd done it in a studio. But the difference on stage is the lights, this is dark, you're bound by the music, right? 13, and I I, I was on a high. And the bows finished, and there were lots of bows. I walked out, and there were these two Hollywood types in pastel open-neck shirts, Tweedy kind of jacket, kind of laid back, these kind of loafers polished with little tassels. And uh, I'm Stanley Donut, and this is Michael Kidd, and this is Jack Cummings, and we're the producer of this movie, and we want you in this movie. And I said, I have to make a costume change. I can't talk to you now. And I rushed off, and I leave these Hollywood types in the wings. And then I come back down again, after the performance and everything, and they're waiting at the door, and they said, we want you in this movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. We want you in this movie. And I, th- I didn't know what to do. I, s- I didn't know what to do. So I went to Balanchine. I said, what do I do? You know, do not sign seven-year contract, you know? They will owe you. Leave to me. So he made my contract, Balanchine, <laughs> and with his lawyer, Mr. Cohn, and so on. Anyway, this goes to 1953 or something. 52, I can't remember. 53, I think. Anyway, that corner 
the floor is different. They put a linoleum on it before you were on the wood that's underneath and not sprung stage. But I'm haunted by this place. It's full of ghosts for me. And I was just watching company class. Oh my God, the dancers. And I have a feeling that as a total company, San Francisco Ballet may be, I believe, the best company in this country. I have no doubt. A long, long answer to Jennifer. Okay, sorry. No. (laughs) Well, we don't want you to do that. You're here to talk to us. Well, you're going to moderate and tell me what to say. And I'm afraid, here's the ball back. I get the feeling no one tells you what to say. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. She did the bad thing. Long after Balanchine died, Betty Cage, who was the manager of the company, had retired. And she said, you know, once I asked George, why do you let Jacques do anything he wants? And Balanchine said, well, when I was 17, no one could tell me what to do. I'm not going to tell him what to do. He'll either do it good or he'll do it bad. Well, you can't imagine how awful I was. I did anything. So I'd go to Bounchine and I'd say, oh, Mr. B, uh, I've decided to do another movie. I'll be gone for the next six weeks. Well, I was under contract. I didn't ask his permission. Oh, Mr. Bounchine, you did a ballet for me. We're premiering it, but I have a television show in Miami. Do you mind? Right? And then the ballet season had finished, and I'd take his favorite ballerinas, plus some quarter ballet girls that I thought was talented, and I'd go and do a tour, sometimes to Munich and Europe, all over the United States, doing his ballets without his permission. Right? And, and I, it wasn't until years later when my wife said, you just don't realize how arrogant and how willful you are. You just do what you want and you never think that you don't have the right to do it. Who do you think you are? Barbarossa? Frederick Barbarossa? The emperor of the supermundi and whatever. Anyway, but that, I'm sorry. You said those words, anything you want. (laughs) That launched me. Spoiled is the middle name. Jacques Spoiled d'Amboise. Well, you had a very special relationship with Balanchine. He seemed to take quite an interest in you. I, I was eight. I wasn't yet nine. And I had to do, I did Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. Lincoln Kirstein had a rich friend. And he had a summer home I mean, with a garden and a platform. And he, he gave money to Ballet Society. It was early days. And if... Uh, if Balanchine would choreograph some little thing. So Tanaki Leclerc, who later became Balanchine's wife, was a 13-year-old nymph. There were four of them. And I was Puck, and I wasn't yet nine, and I had a costume, and I got $10 for the performance. My father was making $35 a week. I had $10. And then I caught bronchitis, and Lincoln Kirstein up in Washington Heights sent a limousine and driver for me 
right? So I came back and I felt I had $10. I danced with these beautiful girls. I was only not even nine, but already I knew that I was in love with women. And uh, despite the will of the belly. And anyway, uh, so when the opportunity came, I had just turned 15 month or so before, and Balanjean said, you know, maybe you want to think you join a company, you know? What do you think? So I quit school. So I only have one year of high school. Forgive me for my doing that to you, because <laughs> I have a master's, and I have a this, and I have an that. And I think I would have loved to have gone to college. I would have loved it. So maybe there's still time I can go. <laughs> Next life. Well, and not long after you joined the company, you were touring the world, weren't you? Yeah, well, right away. Uh, okay. This is going to be long. <laughs> okay. Now it's June, and the company is going on at New York City Ballet, the first tour it ever did, 1950, and we're on our way to London, the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, to play the summer. And so I go to the Royal Opera House, and I'm 15, and July 28 comes, and we've been there already six weeks performing or so, and uh, I am taking company class in the morning, and Melissa Hayden comes in, and someone said, hey, Millie, did you hear Jacques is 16? Oh, 16, where is he? Sweet 16, never been kissed. Come here. Right? Well, I got the kiss in front of the whole company with a lot of tongue action, which had never happened to me before. And so then she walked away and said, Honey, I'm going to kiss you every day for a year for your birthday. And then she goes away, and of course, company class finishes, rehearsal, performance, and the next morning, company class, we're all on stage at 9.30 to 10, and I'm waiting, already puckered. <laughs> and Millie comes in, all right, come here. Right. Well, it lasted a week. And then on the seventh day, like, God is going to take a rest, <laughs> Melissa comes in, all right, this is it. She announced to the whole company and comes over and she covered me with kisses. The back of my head, my ears, my all of like, And then she said, that's it, honey, for the year. And she said, come back when you're 17. I'll have something else for you. <laughs> so anyway, that tour was very memorable. talk about some of the early ballets that you danced, in particular um, by Lou Christensen. Well, there's a history. See, my wife, Carolyn George, was seven years older than me, and uh, when we got married, I was 21, and she was 28, and we were both virgins, and we didn't know anything, and I lost her two years ago. Oh, God, I can't. But anyway, uh, okay. She had a career before that. She had been in Bloomer Girl and Oklahoma and Call Me Matterman and had been touring and had come out here and joined San Francisco Ballet. But it was Bill Christensen running it. 
And it wasn't San Francisco Ballet yet. It was part of the opera. And they would perform it. And my wife, forever, Fausta Cleva was the conductor. And my wife knew every opera, and Albanese, and Zinka Milanoff, and all the singers. And she knew all the operas, because she was in the wings. And then, on a day off, Bill had ballet night. And she danced with San Francisco Ballet, Sally Bailey and Nancy Johnson and the early people. And then from there, she was in New York doing the San Francisco Ballet, couldn't keep everybody on salary. So, and she wanted to be in New York City Ballet. So she came to New York and she got into Call Me Madam and meanwhile auditioned for New York City Ballet. And they said, oh, we're going to go on a tour six months starting in Barcelona, Spain. And uh, when we come back in October or something, there'll be a place for you. So she starts performing Call Me Madam. And on her day off, she goes to the New York City Ballet, which was, in, was doing a matinee. And a girl hurt herself. And Vita Brown, who was the ballet mistress, ran out, grabbed Carolyn out of the wings, ran back while the overture's playing for Swan Lake, they threw her into a costume and they put on Tanaki Leclerc's toe shoes with the closest to her and they shoved her on stage. And they'd say, right foot emboite, left foot morning. And then one ballerina, one in the corps, would pass it to the next quarter ballet girl. Now you glissade to right? Now turn left, run back. Right? Like, and she finished shaking. Right? And they said, if you can get out of, call me, madam, get your passport, pack your bags, we're leaving next week. You're in the company. And she did it all, and she was able to do it because Jerry Robbins, who was the co-artistic director, was the choreographer, director of Call Me Madam. So he let her out. And that's when I first met her, and I saw her, and I fell in love to, with her. And I went to her uh, six months later, a year later, and I tried to take her out, and I tried to kiss her and touch her little breast. And she would push me away and said, I don't want to be serious. So what did I do? Stupid teenager. I was 17. I said, I'm not going to talk to her or any of her friends for a year. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're dancing together for a year. But guess what? I stalked her. I followed her home. I'd watch which light in the brownstone would be her bedroom when it went on. I'd follow her to watch in a restaurant, just like, you know, peek in the curtain to see what she's eating, you know. And then after a year, I realized, well, more than a year, a year and a half, two years, that I had not stopped thinking of her for two years. So I went up and said, hi, you want to go to a movie? <laughs> well, she fell over. <laughs> and then, not with love of me, just shocked that this arrogant brat that everybody said, look, he did a movie and he thinks he's so great. So, love is the crooked thing. There is none that knows all that's in it, for one would be thinking of love till the sun ran away and the shadows covered the moon. 
one cannot begin it too soon. I stole it from Yates. <laughs> now tell us about Apollo. Apollo, Balanchine described it, a wild, untamed youth learns nobility through art. That's his description. And he did it in 1923. He was 23 years old, not 19, earlier, uh, 1927 or something, 28. But he was 23 years old or something when he did it. He was born in uh, 1904. So, and he said, it was the turning point in my life. It's where I first learned as a choreographer, you don't have to use everything you have. He learned how to edit himself. Well, when I got this role, which was revived for me in a whole new look, instead of having golden curls and a tunic with kind of sandals with your ballet shoes and a big Mount Olympus painted in the back, it was, and Balanchine said it, you know, American boy, like hair, like grease. You know that John Travolta in Greece, right? And black and white, simple. So instead of rocks leading Mount Olympus is a thin black staircase. Instead of a rock, there's a little black stool. Instead of the gold, grease, bare-chested, a little white shirt tied. And you know it's timeless because of that. It's timeless. Because the minute you put all that dated stuff, it's stuck. Now that simplicity of the Stravinsky strings. Oh my God! Right, and and the music actually transforms all strings. The very molecules of the air are different because, for some reason, these sounds impinging—you know—sound is nothing but percussion coming into your ear through molecules bouncing off each other and. They transform the very environment. It's one of the great pieces, and it was seminal in my life to approaching dance and ballet and a career totally different. So it's all in the book, but it was seminal. And by the way, before me, there were other great dancers, and after me, there were great dancers. And one of the great dancers was Lou Christensen, who Balanchine revived him after Lee Farr. Then there were others, and then there was Lou. There's a wonderful picture of Lou, and you can understand how beautiful Lou was. And my sister, who was in New York City Ballet, said, I thought movie stars were beautiful until I saw Lou Christensen. Of course, Lincoln was in love with Lou. And the reason there is ballet in America today of the sort it is, it's because of Lincoln's passion for Lou. He did everything for Lou. He brought Balanchine over for Lou. He, he did everything for Lou. And you've got to read the book because, oh my God, there's a story, a poem he wrote about Lou. 
I don't know what page it is. Have you got a book? Can you find that poet in Tamara? It's, uh, it's called Pete Peterson. And I'll set it up. And this is from Lincoln's words and Lou. World War II came, and Lincoln couldn't wait to get in with the men in the trenches and the doughboys. He didn't wait. He could have been an officer. He ran and enlisted, and he ended up sitting, guarding a stove down in Georgia somewhere while the battles were raging in Europe. And he called Nelson Rockefeller, his friend, and Joe Kennedy, right? And said, get me out of here. I want to fight. So they got him a commission, because he knew everything about art, to go around to see if he could find the Nazis' art that they stole and took from people and hid. But you want to fight, said Nelson, and he got him to be a driver in General Patton's army for a colonel. So he was doing all this in the war. Meanwhile, Lou, I don't know whether he enlisted or was drafted, ended up in Graves' registration. You go to the battlefield when there's a lull, and you try to find and match the dog tags to the broken legs and body parts and bag them and bring them back or leave them there if the battle starts again. And that was Lou's job. Now, how did Lincoln meet Lou? Lincoln was in Harvard, and he and a couple of other guys went to a vaudeville show and saw Bill Christensen with Mignon, his wife, and Lou, it wasn't Gisela, I think it was someone else, doing a vaudeville act, a vaudeville act. And Lincoln saw this, and of course Lou was doing all these double tours and handsome and everything. And then Lincoln later went to Europe and saw the ballet, and he came back and he wanted the ballet for Lou, right? So later on, you've got to give me this. I'm going to finish quickly. Listen to this. Lou, Lincoln told me that he was driving with this colonel, and the colonel said, careful, and they're on this dirt road, and they're on their way back from a battlefield, and a soldier jumped in front of the jeep and said, stop, stop, stop. And the colonel said, stick with me, to, to Lincoln, the big six-foot-four Lincoln was, and got out and said, what is it, soldier? And the soldier says, our, our sergeant, our sergeant's in trouble over there. And sitting on a stump, was this bare-chested, bronze beauty of a man in pants fatigue, sobbing and weeping, while around him, his platoon were all standing like mothers, nurtured, worried mothers as their baby choked, right? And the colonel went over and said, stand up, soldier, stand up. And Luke Christensen jumped to his feet and went, aye, aye, sir, aye, aye, sir, aye, aye, sir, aye, aye, sir, completely a wreck. And the colonel didn't know what to do. And, and Lincoln Kirstein, his private driver, said, oh, I know this man, colonel. Let me take care of him. And Lincoln took the colonel, who was a wreck already, and Lou back to the, and left him in the hospital. And years later, Lincoln wrote a poem about it and gave me the poem. I'm going to read it to you. It's called Vaudeville. 
And of course, Luke Christensen has become Pete Peterson. And matinee and evening is two a day. Pete Peterson, before this bit, a professional entertainer. Why, he and his partner, well, they tossed two girls in a two-a-day, swung them by their heels, reached out in midair and caught them, billed themselves as Pete's meteors, meteors, acrobatic adagio classical ballet. His vulnerable grin, efficiency, and bland physique leads him and lands him in graves registration, a slot few strive to seek. He follows death around picking up pieces, recovering men and portion of men, so that by dawn only the landscape bears its wounds. The dead are gone. Near Echsenach, after a last stand that they had the heart to make, with much personal slaughter by small arms at close range, I... I drive for an officer, sent down to look things over. Hey, there's Pete, slouched on a stump, catching his wind. On your feet, salute. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Bad here, what? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good manners or knowing no words can ever condone what has happened, what he had to do, what has he done. It spares any further grief. Pete slumps back down. A shimmering pulsation of exhaustion fixes him, and in its throbbing aura, like footlights when a curtain rises, his act is over. Nothing now till the next show. He takes his break while stagehands move the scenery and the performing dogs are led up from below. You wanted to know about Lou. <laughs> that was Lou in the pulsating light and aura of the footlights. Well, we are running out of time, but oh. because arts education is so important to us here at San Francisco Ballet, I do want to ask you to say a few words about the National Dance Institute. Oh, hey, I never paid for a lesson. Everything was given to me. I was exactly the wild Washington Heights gang kid learning nobility through the arts, music, dance. Can you imagine? I mean, 12 years old, Cecil Beaton puts on my makeup, Stravinsky's conducting, and I'm dancing with Maria Tolchief in the back behind her, and oh my God, right? And traveling all over the world. I mean, I should have been a gangster on the street. I would have been a good gangster. <laughs> but anyway, I realized very early on that I had to pay back. So I started going into schools because they tell you about the arts. Oh my God, oh, how can we support the arts when there are people that need nutrition and shelter? Of course, we need fresh air, we need learning, we need medical, we need, that should be a given. And how dare anybody consider themselves learned, not educated, learned. When did you finish your education? You would never say, when did you finish learning? Learned without poetry, without music, 
without dance, without literature, and mathematics, and science, and so I think that no one should be considered learned that exactly what happens in kindergarten keeps going. Ring around a rosy, make song, hitting sticks together, symphony orchestras, operas, playing with blocks, architecture, right? What we do in kindergarten should continue through life as well as how does it work and what is it and where does fire go when it burns? It goes somewhere. How do I find out? That should be part of everybody's learning. Well, I'm not a scientist, but I know how to, about the arts, and I know dance is the best window to it. So I go into schools. Now I teach teachers how to go into schools. Over two million children have been through my program. We're starting one in Shanghai this summer, National Dance Institute. There are 12 in the United States. And what is it? During school, the entire grade has a dance class that introduces the whole school to art. This year, our theme is science and arts play together. Last year was the storyteller. The year before that, it was John Lennon and the music of the Beatles. And we take a theme, 40,000 children in New York are right now in this program. And well, I have to raise a lot of money, so I go around begging to the rich, help, 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 and so on. And every once in a while, I get a chance to work with dancers like that, and I realize I don't really want to raise money. I want to work with dancers like that. So maybe Helgi will bring me back. I don't know. Anyway, okay. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank again our guest, Jacques D'Amboise. And if you enjoyed that, uh, first of all, I hope you'll tell people to log on to our website, sfballet.org, where you can hear this interview and others like it. And also, of course, you can find Jacques' book, I Was a Dancer, at your local booksellers. And can I say one quick thing? Helgi Tomasin and I shared a dressing room. Why he ever stomached me? Because I would put Ben Gay. And then I'd take something called elements and brocation, which they use for horses, right? I'd have put that on. Then I'd put my woolies. And then I'd, right, the dressing room stunk like you can't believe. And little Helgi on the other desk, we shared it together, is putting on his, never complaining, never complaining. I can't believe it that he didn't say, will you get out? I want a new dressing room. Get me another. Anyway, he's done a wonderful job. <laughs>